Welcome to Living Orthodoxy, an invitation to a deeper life in Christ, a podcast of St. Philip Orthodox Church in Souderton, Pennsylvania, dedicated to connecting the liturgical and spiritual life of the Orthodox parish with the life of the Orthodox home, presenting the weekly homilies of our parish pastors, Father Noah Buscelli and Father James Thayer, as well as discussions of the liturgical year and Orthodox life and practice by Justin Gold and Jeff Hyatt. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by just giving a, what's, what's the word, a, a great uh, welcome to all, but also uh, wanted to note that today is the feast day of St. Catherine, and uh, you know, blessed name day to all Catherines, and uh, a few others. Uh, first among equals would be my wife, uh, the beautiful and virtuous Kate Catherine, so uh, it occurred to me that I might actually appear on her icon, which we have here. I, I might be the wheel of torture that uh, uh, appears on the icon there. But, uh, but uh, St. Catherine is truly a, uh, a shining contrast to the young ruler that we encounter in the gospel lesson. Uh, St. Catherine lacked nothing of this worldly wealth, beauty, knowledge, uh, and yet she willingly and readily gave it up out of her love uh, for the Savior, and uh, and followed, and actually, it's it's curious that in the gospel lesson we don't actually know what happened to this, uh, in at least in Luke's account, what happened to this young man. Uh, so, in some way, maybe you know, uh, Saint Catherine is is a kind of continuation of of that story. Uh, but this gospel lesson has stood as a as a ongoing inspiration for certainly the monastic tradition of the church, those who have sold all, right, and, and gone and uh, completely dedicated their, their lives to, uh, to prayer and to, to the Lord's service. Um, this gospel can be approached from a variety of angles. Uh, we could explore the, the fascinating differences between the, the various synoptic accounts, this uh, story of the rich young ruler. For example, uh, Matthew's account has some significant differences from both Luke and Mark. Uh, in Matthew, the question of goodness right, uh, relates to what is to be done. What good thing am I supposed to do? Right? Not to Jesus as good teacher. Right? Uh, so Matthew, another thing Matthew uh, has in his text is Jesus adds the golden rule uh, to the list of commandments. Uh, he ends with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That doesn't appear in, in Mark and Luke. So that, of course, is the, a summary of the law that uh, Paul also quotes uh, in his letters. Only in Matthew do we learn that this man is young. Uh, on the other hand, Mark has some distinctive features as well, particularly in how we see his approach to uh, this young man's approach to the Lord. He comes in a posture of humility, kneeling before Christ as he comes to him, and Later, in, the, in Mark's account, we're told that Jesus loves him. He sees uh, this man's, his true self, his true interior disposition, and he, Jesus responds with love to, towards the man. Only in Luke's account are we told that this man is a ruler, and, uh, and only does Luke say that he comes to question Jesus. Gives a kind of negative, perhaps a slightly negative uh, color to, the, to the, uh, this interaction between this, this ruler and, 
and, uh, and Jesus. We could also focus on the question of Christian, the Christian's relationship to wealth, right, and the, the necessary sacrifices involved in following Jesus. As, as already mentioned, that was from, from the early days of the church, this text has, foc- or has been a, the subject of ongoing discussion of, you know, what does it mean to actually give up all? And in fact, Luke it adds the word all. So in Luke's, in Luke's account is where we get this all, right? All things need to be given up. So another fascinating things. But um, I suspect that the church has put this, uh, has connected this gospel lesson with the epistle from Galatians 3, in the Advent season, the season of preparation, and I, 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 the season of anticipation, and I think that the church wants us to reflect on the gospel lesson uh, in terms of the, the role of the law in salvation history. And from that, we will see that you know, flowing from that, that issue, that question, is the reality of God's generosity, uh, which calls forth our response, uh, our, our generous response as uh, his covenant people. The rich man approaches Jesus with an ultimate question regarding the, uh, the future, right? The age to come. Jesus, what do I need to do here in the present age to set me in good stead uh, in the age to come? That is to inherit eternal life. Not a bad question, right? Um, maybe, you know, we could stand a little bit more reflection on that question in, in our world this day. Um, but indeed, it's a very important question, but also a very limited question, a very uh, narrow uh, question of limited, scope, of limited scope. What must I do you know, to, to inherit eternal life? Uh, so we might reflect that just before God gives the Torah, the law, the Ten Commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai, he indicates that Israel is to be a nation of priests, uh, priests represent and mediate or, and intercede. So Israel's job in the economy of salvation was, always looked beyond itself to the nations. Israel was to represent the true God and true humanity and mediate this knowledge, this way of life, to the surrounding na- uh, nations, to creation itself. And this law, this is what the law was, a pattern of life to be embodied, incarnated, before God and men. God gave Israel the gift of the law, not just for their own benefit, but for all. The inheritance of the law was a call to servanthood. The the rich man's question perhaps uh, short-circuits that that question, that cosmic uh, purpose for the law, the, the salvation of all, of all the nations, of all creation. And then there, uh, another issue, then there is the reality of who he's talking to. Uh, good teacher, you say. Well, do you realize what these words imply? Right? There is one who is good, or God alone. Right? The rich man is talking to the teacher, the one who spoke on Sinai, and in these latter days became incarnate, and so uh, internalized the law, that is Jesus, so internalized the law as to become in his humanity what he already was in his deity, the word of God. Jesus is the law, enfleshed, the true Israelite, the true human, and the eternal word of God who speaks in the natural law and creation, the written law of Moses, and the spiritual law of the new covenant that's written on our hearts. This rich man finds himself having many possessions, a rich inheritance, the law, 
And in his keeping of the law, which Jesus doesn't deny, right? He says, I've done all these things for my youth. Jesus doesn't say, no, you're a rotten sinner, right? Like, uh, so he's, he, Jesus accepts it, that he's actually been a law keeper. Um, but in not having yet become a disciple of Christ, joining Jesus on the way of the cross, this man finds himself at least in danger of losing whatever inheritance he already has. Uh, do you see how that his, his uh, material wealth is a kind of symbol of his spiritual wealth? And, and so he's a rich man, and that's a symbol of his spiritual wealth, his inheritance as an Israelite who, is, who has been a law keeper. So to borrow a metaphor from St. Basil the Great, this man is like a, uh, a merchant ship, and his obedience to the law is his precious cargo, his inheritance. But this man does not yet see that Jesus is the destination of his voyage and is in danger of suffering shipwreck before he reaches the port. So while this story can be read in other ways, I think we are being invited to, to see the rich young man as a personification of Israel, perhaps even the faithful remnant, who has been given this illustrious inheritance of the law and the prophets, which he has kept, protected, guarded. The, that word can be read. It's actually the, related to the word for prison uh, in, in Greek. Uh, and, but this inheritance must be given away to the poor, that is, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And Israel must reorient its understanding of covenant relationship to, uh, around Jesus. Following Jesus is now the way of expressing covenant fidelity to Israel's God, for Jesus is the law, the enfleshment of the law, the fulfillment of Torah. Perhaps we could compare the rich young ruler with the son in the parable of the prodigal son who stayed home, uh, who was always with the father. Right? We know that all the commandments Jesus lists come from the second half of the law, which pertains to the horizontal plane of human interaction, ethics, society. What then about the first half? Can the identity of Israel's God simply be assumed? Or Israel's faithful response to this God? So this is how I think we should hear Jesus' leading question about goodness, right? You call me good, is there, there's none good but God. Uh, fill in the identity of this one good God with me as the, as the good teacher. So, sir, are you willing to give up this possession, this inheritance, which is not even yours anyway, and hand it over to those who have nothing so that they too might enter into covenant relationship with God. Moreover, is it more important to retain your inheritance, the law, the scriptures, the old covenant scriptures, or the God who gave it and who is now revealing himself in the new and ultimate way in the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ? If you want to enter into eternal life, the age to come, the law cannot get you there by itself. Only Jesus can. So Paul, in, in his letter to the Galatians gives us the reason for this, and, and in frankly some startling terms. He connects the law with these elemental spirits of the world, that somehow the law has been co-opted by these malicious forces, and turned the law has been turned into an instrument of, of death and cursing. So we can't really explore that too much here, but uh, there's that that dark side of why the law can't get you into the age to come, because it actually has been turned into a, uh, a, an instrument of, of cursing and death. Israel itself needed to be redeemed from the law. But the bright side, uh, 
in giving up the law, this inheritance, one receives it back in the very meaning of the law itself, that is Christ. And in this way, to, to draw on Paul's language, one moves from being a child who is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate, into a full adoption, into the sonship of Christ himself, who is the seed of Abraham. That's the switch, the exchange, that the young man in the gospel either cannot comprehend or cannot abide. And so, to follow Jesus is the meaning of the law. Following Jesus is to become the law, the meaning of the law. Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Christ is the righteous one. He is the meaning and fulfillment of the law. And so for us who are in Christ, we become righteous. We become the law itself uh, in Christ. We could reflect also on St. Augustine's words uh, as he discusses the law of love. He says, so if it seems to you that you have understood the divine scriptures or any part of them in such a way that by this understanding you do not build up this twin love of God and of neighbor, then you have not understood them. And so people, supported by faith, hope, and charity, love, and retaining a firm grip on them, have no need of the scriptures except for instructing others. And so there are many who live by these three, even in the desert, without books. This leads me to, the, uh, to think that the text has already been fulfilled in them, as for prophecies, they shall be done away with. As for tongues, they shall cease. As for knowledge, it shall be done away with. That is why there abide, he says, faith, hope, and charity, love. But the greatest of these is charity. Because when anyone attains to the things of eternity, while the first two fade away, charity will abide more vigorous and certain than ever. So I hope we see now why the church has set these passages before us in this Advent season, in preparation for our Lord's nativity. We must remember that and understand that Christ's birth in the flesh 2,000 years ago was but the start. Christ has showered all creation with invigorating life. That birth must be appropriated again by us. Christ must be born in our hearts. The day spring from on high must dawn within us. At our baptism, certainly, but then every day, uh, perhaps even every hour and minute. That is the purpose of the incarnation, to make us participants in the life and love of the triune God. And of course, that's where our responsibility comes from as God's covenant people. We embody God's love and peace in our lives, try to, and in the church as a kingdom of priests, a missionary people called to give birth to Christ in the world for the life of the world. How are we going to model God's generosity, his self-giving? Are we going to live as a kingdom of priests and prophets whose calling is to bring the knowledge of God to our neighbors through our lives and words that are, have been transformed in Christ? To tie it back to the rich young ruler, who, uh, the rich young man who's called a ruler, we are all rulers in some way, right? Uh, in some virtue, in some talent, in some position at work, in our families, in our church, in, in our community. What are we going to do with our wealth that we have in Christ? That we are charged with cultivating and bearing fruit. What are we going to do with the wealth of our tradition? Are we going to hoard this beautiful place, this life uh, of communion in Christ to ourselves? How will we minister God's love to the poor among us, both in spirit and in body? This is our calling, and with God all things are possible. May God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless us and empower us to be and become God-bearers this Advent and throughout our lives and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen.